our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Now take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Today, as we finish out our study of Christ's Olivet Discourse, uh, his prophecies concerning the end, the fall of Jerusalem, and also his glorious return. Uh, today we will see the end of this. We're going to stop short just before the end of the chapter, and uh, Lord willing, next week, uh, Pastor Andrew will come and preach the remaining two verses of chapter 1 together with the beginning of chapter 2. Uh, but today we're reading Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 29, and reading through verse 36. Luke chapter 21, beginning to read in verse 29, and reading to verse 36. And we will hear a call to get ready and to watch and to wait for that day as we read together. Now, before we uh, read this word, please join me again in prayer as we seek the Lord's blessing upon it. Gracious Father, we pray that you would open our minds and our hearts and move our wills. You, O Lord, are able to call your people both by word and spirit to draw us after yourself, to make us your faithful followers, and so we pray that you would give us hope in you, O Lord. Give us hearts that long not just for the things of this world, but for the coming of your kingdom. And even as we uh, look at these words, we pray that you would build us up in prayer and watchfulness, in assurance that you are coming again. Help us, O oh Lord, uh, to trust in your word and to long to see it fulfilled. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 21, beginning to read in verse 29. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. As far as the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. It was about a, a month and a half ago, I believe, just this past April, uh, a, a man named Adam Grant wrote an op-ed. You've probably seen it linked somewhere in your social media. Uh, but Adam Grant wrote an op-ed that was published in the New York Times where he was attempting to give a name uh, to what he called the lockdown blah that many people were experiencing during the pandemic. Uh, he suggested that for many folks it was 
Uh, it was the long-term emotional effects of cutting off our social contacts and doing our jobs from home in our pajamas that might have contributed to a foggy, listless, plodding sensation over the last year and change. It was a sense of continuing through the motions of each day, certainly, but doing so without a sense of purpose, without a sense of passion, and Grant labeled this experience languishing. Languishing. It's what he calls the neglected middle child of mental health, the void between depression and flourishing. And he cited recent research. He claimed that languishing uh, can dull your motivation, that it can disrupt your ability to focus, and that it might even triple the odds that you're going to cut back on the work that you need to do. Languishing, uh, says uh, Adam Grant. But you know how it goes in our modern age. Uh, the voice of the prophet has been replaced with the voice of the therapist. And yesterday's sin is today's psychological suffering. As it turns out, actually, the early church had a word for uh, this weird sort of shadow land between energy and hopelessness, and they called it the sin of acedia. Acedia was once considered the eighth, that's right, the eighth deadly sin uh, before it was rolled into the sin of sloth. Acedia was a distinctly spiritual malaise, not just a general malaise out in the things that we have to do around us in the world, but a spiritual malaise. It left the, the sinner uh, muddling through the motions of their faith, but without any zeal for the Lord, without ever longing for the things of the kingdom. Acedia was the church in Laodicea, neither hot nor cold. It described the slow stagnation of the kind of discipleship that keeps one eye on Jesus, but has the other eye constantly scanning the horizon for some distraction. It's really not very far from what Jesus is calling us out of in these verses. Watch yourselves, he says. Stay awake at all times. Know that the day of the Lord will come like a trap and it will close suddenly upon all who dwell upon the face of the whole earth. As we finish out our study of the Olivet Discourse today, we're going to hear Christ calling his disciples to action. He's calling us to believe the guarantee of his return. And he's calling us to shake off those sleepy distractions that leave us unprepared. And so in these verses we find a call to stay ready, to stay ready for the return of our Savior. Now in this passage, Jesus gives us here a word of assurance and then a word of instruction. That's how we're going to approach it today, a word of assurance and a word of instruction. The assurance comes first in the form of this parable. Jesus says, pay attention to the trees because as soon as you see them come out in leaf, you can see for yourself and know that summer is already near. A few weeks ago, my uh, family and I, we, we took a family trip to Pennsylvania. And when we left, we left our yard full of gray trees covered in sticks and twigs. And when we came back, uh, just a week later, we came back to oaks and maples in full bloom and full leaf. We came back to that thin film of New England pollen covering everything in sight. 
and we know how it goes. We've gotten used to these things. It's just the rhythm of the seasons. We get used to seeing those signs that let us know that by the end of the week, 90-degree days are on the way. And so this parable doesn't have a very complicated message, actually. The end is coming, and when it comes, it's going to come with signs that can be seen. Just like summer is preceded by the trees greening, so also the return of the Son of Man, the coming of God's kingdom is going to be preceded, Jesus said, verse 25, by signs, by signs in sun and moon and stars, by the distress of nations, by the roaring of seas and the waves. These are the leaves and the buds that break on the twigs in early spring that let us know that something's happening. And for anyone who is even halfway paying attention, the point of this is that it's going to be unavoidably obvious that something serious is about to happen. And Jesus has told us about these things beforehand for a purpose so that when they happen, and if we see them happening, we can exercise discernment without anxiety. In other words, there are at least two errors that we can fall into concerning the signs of Christ's return. The first error is that of being so ignorant of what Christ has promised that we refuse to see what's already in front of us. You remember back in Matthew chapter 16 that Jesus chastised the Pharisees because they were experts in reading the signs of the sky. They knew what the weather was going to be like. They knew if rain was coming tomorrow because of the color of the clouds, and yet they had no idea about the spiritual signs letting them know that the Messiah was walking among their midst. And there will always be people who fit the description of the Pharisees. Even when Christ returns, there will be some people who are so spiritually disengaged that they refuse to believe what Christ has said is going to happen. That's why in verse 31, we should probably read that verse as a command. Verse 31, so also, when you see these things taking place, know or recognize or pay attention to the fact that the kingdom of God is coming near. It's a call to discernment. It's a call to expect that what Christ has prophesied is going to happen and to learn to pay attention. Well, that's the first error. Uh, that of being so ignorant of what Christ has promised. And the other error is to be so anxious of what Christ has said that we're afraid we might miss it, that it might happen without our knowing, or that we have to know exactly when and where and how it's going to happen, that we have to figure out the last little detail of the Bible prophecy so that we can be ready because that's where it's going to be. And we're really putting our faith not in what Christ has said, but in what we can discern. And sadly, there are teachers and preachers who build their entire ministries feeding on that kind of anxiety among God's people rather than just speaking peace to them. David Garland put it this way. He said, the whole subject of the end time and of Christ's return has been the playground of cranks and fanatics. And you know it. <laughs> you know they're out there. You've seen those books where they're trying to tell you that you can learn, if you read this book, you can learn to unlock the secret code that's hidden in the book of Revelation, and you'll know what to expect. 
And you've heard about those self-styled prophets who can tell you that they know when Christ is going to come and we see it happen throughout history. And isn't it embarrassing when they have to keep moving that date a little further ahead and a little further ahead. But they're out there. And Jesus explicitly warns us not to be snookered by such lies. That's what he said back in verse 8. He said, see that you're not led astray. Many are going to come in my name. They're going to say things like, I am he. They're going to say, the time is now. And Jesus says, don't go after them. The point of the parable is that you don't have to be anxious about when Christ is going to return, so long as you're merely paying attention. When the trees come out and leaf, you can see for yourself that summer is near. You don't need a, a Bible code book. You don't need a modern-day prophet. You don't need some latter-day saint telling you what to expect and when it will come. Jesus says, when you see the signs, you'll know. Simply watch, simply wait for what Christ has declared because the end is going to come, and it's going to come with signs that can be seen. It's also going to come according to Christ's word. Now, verses 32 and 33 are here for a very specific reason. Both of them, I think, are here to give us confidence in what Christ has said. He tells us that his word is more permanent than the heavens and the earth. It is more durable than the creation itself. All that Christ has predicted is going to be accomplished. Nothing is going to be left out of what he has declared. And this is an amazingly bold statement. Jesus is putting his word on equal footing with God's word because the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And no prophet in all Israel's history ever had the guts to say anything like what Jesus is saying about his own preaching and teaching right now. They all talked about the authority of God. They pointed beyond themselves and up to God. But Jesus says, my word will last just like the word of the Father. Jesus speaks his own lasting word, and this is meant to give us confidence, assurance in what he's declared. But many people never get to the assurance of verse 33 because they're too busy tripping over the language of verse 32. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Well, that's a statement that is difficult on the surface, isn't it? We read that and we realize that if Jesus meant generation the way we typically think of a generation, then at least either Jesus has gotten something very wrong about the second coming or we have. Now, given the choice between those two, I would say that it's pretty safe that we're the ones who are mistaken. But that hasn't stopped liberal scholars, it hasn't stopped unbelievers for hundreds of years of saying that Jesus can't be trusted because of Luke chapter 21, verse 32, and what he says there. In fact, even C.S. Lewis, the great defender of mere Christianity, said that this verse and the parallels in the other Gospels, it is the, quote, most embarrassing verse in the Bible. And so some Bible scholars like to suggest that Jesus was wrong, that he wrongly expected the king to become in 
fullness and in power and ultimate revelation and the height and the consummation of his kingdom that he expected it within just a few decades maybe. Because that's what a generation means. It's 30, 40 years, give or take. And so what are we to do with this verse? Well, without examining every option, there are a few interpretations and and some that I think we ought to consider. For some believers, uh, some of our brothers and sisters in the church, this word is interpreted literalistically. They, They take this word pretty narrowly, generation. And so they suggest that Jesus has in mind not the end of the world, but just the fall of Jerusalem. Actually, that happened within about 40 years' time from when Jesus was preaching here. And and probably many of the men who were there and listening to Jesus preaching and teaching, they would have seen the temple burn at the touch of the Roman torches. But when we consider the context, I think we have to uh, say that this is actually about something larger than Jerusalem. This statement, verse 32, it's sandwiched between Jesus' promise in verse 28 that redemption for God's people is coming and between verse 35 that it's going to come upon all those who dwell upon the face of the earth. We talked about a little bit of that last week if you were here, that I think this is about something bigger than just Jerusalem. And that means that the other option is to understand generation more broadly not referring to a group of people defined by when they were born, but a group of people defined by their spiritual approach to things. Dale Ralph Davis says, a people not defined by time, but by type. And very often in the New Testament, and even in the Old Testament, the, the language of generation, the word genea in Greek, is used to speak of a type of people, those who are gathered together with a, a similar focus or a similar approach. Take a look back at Luke chapter 16, verse 8. Luke chapter 16, verse 8. This is the parable of the uh, dishonest manager, and Jesus says in Luke chapter 16, verse 8, that the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So there are sons of light, and there are sons of this world, or sons of this age. And actually, they're both alive at the same time. Who knows? Maybe they were all born within the same decade or so, but they belong to different generations, different types, different groups of people who are approaching God and spirituality and faith and matters of morality in completely different ways. They're parts of two different types of people. So if you have a different English translation, yours might uh, use a different word than generation. It might say that the sons of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own people or with their own kind or even in dealing with the world around them. But this is the same word. It's the same uh, word, generation. So at least in Luke chapter 16, and I think in several other places in Luke's gospel, Jesus is speaking about a generation as a type of people. It's a broader use than the narrow one that we're used to. And I think we could say, uh, perhaps, that Jesus is also using that here uh, in chapter 21. In fact, I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus is speaking of a spiritual generation, a group of people that are united in the way that they approach Jesus and the kingdom of God. Well, if he is speaking about a type of people, a a spiritual generation, which spiritual generation is he discussing here? It could be that Jesus is speaking about that wicked 
unbelieving generation that he so often preaches about in Luke's gospel. That unbelieving generation was often shorthand for the Jewish nation as a whole. In fact, Jesus in Luke chapter 17, verse 25, predicted that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation, the Jewish people. But that approach to Jesus actually wasn't uh, wasn't confined to people with the Jewish heritage. Actually, anybody who is against Christ and against his kingdom, they fit into that same category. All those who desire to see Christ's kingdom topple, who want nothing to do with his reign in glory. And so Jesus could be speaking of this unbelieving generation. And if he is, this is a word to perseverance. If that's what Jesus means, he is reminding his people that while we wait for his return, we're going to wait in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That the church will never lack adversaries among the unbelievers who love to mock and deride our faith in a Savior who's coming again. And far more wonderfully, I think Jesus actually has in mind the generation of his people, his elect, his faithful believers. Consider the context. Jesus says heaven and earth will pass away. He says his words will not pass away. And in fact, until it is done, this generation will not pass away either. This generation that he has in mind is among those things that endure while Jesus says that even the powers of the heavens will be shaken. It's a word of assurance, you see. It's a call to rejoice in the peace of the Lord. Yes, we wait in the midst of of turmoil and strife. Yes, we wait as sons of light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And yes, we wait in their unbelievers sneering and saying that the Savior's not returning. But while we wait, we have this promise that Christ will sustain his church. His elect will never be consumed. This crooked generation will not prevail over the generation of his children down to the day of his return. This actually was far and away the most uh, popular interpretation of this phrase here, this generation in the early church. In the first few generations after uh, the resurrection and ascension of Christ, here's how John Chrysostom put it in the fourth century, ten generations after the ascension. Chrysostom says, All these things shall surely come to pass, yet the generation of the faithful shall remain. For both Jerusalem shall perish, and the more part of the Jews shall be destroyed, but over this generation nothing shall prevail. Not famine, not pestilence, not earthquake, not the tumults of wars, not false Christ, not false prophets, not deceivers, not traitors, not those who cause to offend, not the false brethren, nor any such like temptation whatsoever. This seems to be the message, this word of assurance that Jesus has for his people, that the generation of the faithful shall remain. It's a word of assurance to give us hope in what he has said, not only that it will come to pass, that not only that his kingdom will come in glory, but that his people will be there to see that day. There will always be a church on earth, no matter how loud the opposition no matter how violent the persecution, no matter how sly the schemes of the devil against her. Christ's generation of faithful ones will never pass away until all has been fulfilled.
when this is the call to assurance. The end is going to come with signs to be seen, but it's going to come according to the word of our Savior. Not a jot or a tittle of his word shall go unfulfilled, and so he tells us to be prepared, to stay ready for the return of our Savior. That's why in the second half of our passage, Jesus uh, transitions from a word of assurance to a word of instruction. He wants to tell us how to stay ready, how to be prepared. And so for one, Jesus says that we need to guard against distracting indulgence. We need to guard against distracting indulgence. Take a look at verse 34. But watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. It's like the feeling of going to the dentist. And you're getting your yearly x-rays and before they begin the dentist pulls out that heavy uh, leaded smock and lays it on you in the chair and at first, it feels kind of sterile and plastic, but there's, there's something soothing about it. It's like that weighted blanket that you put on your dog to keep them calm during a thunderstorm, and you just sink into the chair, and you think, I don't know that I ever have to leave where I'm sitting right now. Watch that your hearts are not weighed down, Jesus says. Now, Christ knows that as we wait for his promises, we are all too easily distracted. We're too easily uh, seeking out those diversions that feel soothing. Those things that make us think that there's no reason to hope for anything in life beyond the reach of our chair or our computer screen or the next drink that we can pour into our glass. So the passage mentions uh, dissipation and drunkenness, wastefulness, ungodly excess that dulls our senses, that, that clouds our thoughts, the kind of thing that leaves us unprepared and quite frankly uninterested in serving Christ our Savior. The word dissipation really is a a pretty unsavory word. It really indicates uh, the hangover that you experience after a night of heavy drinking. So this is talking about that alcohol-induced haze that follows a few too many weekends, throwing back a few too many beers, engaging in that great American pastime of living for the moment. Let your hearts be weighed down, says Jesus. He also warns us, though, about the cares of this life. The word here is related to biology. And so it's not talking about those uh, those grand life-changing anxieties, those great moments that weigh upon you. It's talking about the daily scheduling and the routines and the what shall we eat and the what shall we wear and can we make sure that our bills are paid on time and who's going to be picking up little Johnny from soccer practice. And on the one hand, we find a stupor of debauchery. And on the other hand, this flurry of of seemingly harmless activity. And Jesus says, watch out, because they both have the power to anesthetize you. To take your your longing for the things of the kingdom and to bring them down to the things of this world. And to to anesthetize you and to, to desensitize you to the fact that our greatest joy doesn't consist in food and drink and filling up our schedules. And if you're wise, you'll apply this passage to whatever other categories that go beyond alcohol and busyness in your own life that that tempt you to settle in and to settle down. 
Phil Riken says, any interest or entertainment that we use to escape from serious issues of life and death and eternity causes the same problem. And so it could be video games or television or romance novels or you pick, whatever it is. And we have to be on our guard. We have to keep watch over our hearts that we're not too quickly, too easily distracted. We don't forget that we're meant to be waiting for something better. We have to watch that we don't forget that we're meant to be about the work of Christ's kingdom until he comes. And we have to guard against distracting indulgence. Well, but Christ also calls us to stay alert through constant prayer. This is other word of instruction for us. Now, at the end of his teaching, uh, where Jesus mentions prayer in verse uh, 36, stay awake at all times praying. Actually, that word, prayer, functions as what the scholars like to call an instrumental participle. It's a fancy word of saying it tells us how we stay awake. It's the method of, of rousing ourselves from spiritual drowsiness. So if it helps you to understand what's going on, you can read verse 36 with one little word, by, inserted. But stay awake at all times by praying. Stay awake by praying and pray that you might have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And it's that scene with Jesus and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane all over again. Jesus is there, and he's burdened, and he's anxious without sin. His focus is like a laser on what's about to happen. These monumental events of the kingdom and of his sacrifice. And he brings his disciples along with him, and he says, stay awake and pray a while with me. In fact, in Luke, he says, pray specifically that you may not enter into temptation. Do you hear it again? That instrumental for Jesus, in that moment, prayer is a tool, it is a weapon to defeat the schemes of the devil, to keep away from the temptation toward self-preservation, to fight back against the lies of the evil one, and he wants for his disciples to engage in that same discipline. He wants them to set their minds on spiritual realities that go beyond their own sleepy little worlds. Pray that you might not enter into temptation. Stay awake at all times, praying. I think it's revealing of our own spiritual engagement how little we often pray about these eternal things. We pray about things. We had lots to pray about today. We prayed about some eternal things as well, but you know, we tend to pray about the things that seem important to us at the time. And thankfully, most believers, I imagine in this room, know what it is to have that, that crisis that pushes you beyond yourself, uh, that will not let you sleep until you've wrestled with the Lord in prayer. There's something that, that is beyond you, and you can't stop praying. You haven't changed your schedule. You haven't made any new spiritual resolutions, but the Lord sees fit to steal a few hours of your sleep so that you would come to Him in prayer. And what a blessing it is when that happens. But most of the time, when Christ calls us to pray for something that, that seems as far away as his second coming sometimes seems, we find it much easier just to pray for those things uh, that are around us, that are close at hand. So we pray for our finances. 
And we pray for our health. And we pray for that presentation that our child has in school the next day. And it becomes easy just to forget prayer altogether. Easy to slip like Peter and James and John into a comfortable swoon, easier to let our hands fall and our lips go silent and to sleep the sleep of prayerlessness. Jesus is calling us to stay awake. And to stay awake through prayer, to keep watch, to set our minds and our souls on what he's promised. In fact, he gives us specific prayer instructions. He tells us exactly what we ought to pray for. He says, pray for strength that you may escape and strength that you might stand. Pray that when he returns, and return he will, that you would be among the ones who are ushered into his presence. Pray that that day will not come upon you like a trap. Pray that it will be a day of vindication and redemption and not a day of judgment. Pray that he would allow you to stand. And the wonderful thing about verse 36 and what Jesus is telling us to ask is that he's the one who's able to fulfill it. Our ability to stand before him at the last day is in the power of his hand. And we need to remember that when we get drowsy. We need to remember that our Savior does not slumber and does not sleep, that his eye is always on his people for good. We need to remember that he always lives to intercede for his saints, that even right now he's at the right hand of the Father where his blood speaks a better word for us than the blood of Abel crying out from the ground. That Jesus, by his life and death and resurrection, is our great intercessor. We need to remember that we don't stand by our own power, but we stand in his strength. And Christ is there waiting until that day when all his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. And on that day, it is Christ himself who's able to answer this prayer that he's telling you to pray right now. Jude, chapter, uh, Jude verse 24, rather, tells us uh, it's Christ who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. It's a word of assurance. It's a word of instruction. Christ our Savior is coming again just as he said. And so dear believer, keep watch and stay awake and stay ready for that day. Let's pray together. Oh Lord our God, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for our risen ascended Savior who will come again in the same way that the apostles saw him go, coming on the clouds of heaven, the Son of Man, bringing redemption with him, calling his people to himself. O Lord, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, we pray, and help us to be ready for that day, we pray in Jesus' name.